Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Support for the California Report comes from the Wesley Foundation improving the lives of California's children and youth at risk. The California Endowment, working to achieve health and justice for all. Learn more at calendow.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose family foundation advances the wiser use of energy and natural resources on a planet where everything is connected. On the web at theschmidt.org. On today's California Report magazine, we drive miles of backcountry roads with a man who's making sure people living on the edge don't go without. We're loaded to the gills. There's produce, there's cabbage, white onions, sweet potatoes, uh, the senior box. Plus the story of a photographer who's giving Vietnam veterans the honor they deserve, one frame at a time. This guy right here was a helicopter pilot, and he wears a necklace with a bullet, and this bullet um, hit him, and uh, you know when they pulled it out, he kept the bullet, and he wears it around his neck. And buckle up, blasting across intergalactic borders with a group of futuristic Latino artists. I'm Stephen Cuevas, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Trinity County is one of those places that doesn't get in the news too often, unless it's wildfire season like it is now. It's a remote, rural part of Northern California that can be breathtakingly beautiful. It's also one of the state's most food-insecure places, where many people don't know where their next meal will come from. For the series California Foodways, Lisa Morehouse brings us this profile of one man who helps feed them. The sun's barely come up in the tiny town of Douglas City and three men are almost done packing a couple of trucks with food. We're loaded to the gills. (laughs) There's produce, there's cabbage, white onions, sweet potatoes, uh, the senior box. Jeff England's the director of the Trinity County Food Bank. I hop into the cab of a 20-year-old truck with a rattling refrigeration unit and join him on his monthly food delivery run to the county's hungriest and most isolated residents. When I make my trip, because of all the twisty, turny roads, I kind of have to take it a little bit easy because... Too sharp a turn can upend the pallets of food he's carefully packed for today's ten-and-a-half-hour drive. It's over 100 degrees, and there's no air conditioning. Out the windshield, I see vehicles that have fallen off the side of the road and thickly forested mountains on one jagged ridge after another. If it was just flattened out completely with all the mountains and everything else, it would be the size of Texas. Today's his longest route, and he'll clock 230 miles. So where are we now? 
We're at Solid Rock Church in Hayport. Would you like some onion? More than 50 people line up inside the church for prepared foods, some produce, and special boxes for seniors. England cobbles together this food from a spider's web of local, state, and federal programs. You are welcome. Would you like some tea now? Teresa Kirkland's a volunteer, but she also comes here to collect free food, which she often combines in casseroles. Without the food bank, you just go without. I'm on Social Security. After you pay all your bills, if you have an emergency, a flat tire, or anything that you have to take care of, well, that has to wait until the following month. By the fourth or the fifth of the month, I'm broke. So I don't go nowhere, can't socialize. So for a long month. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. For a very long month. be a long, long month. She's here with Glenda Rains. Both of these women say they used to supplement their budgets by taking items to a recycling center in Hayfork, but that's closed now. Rains says until recently, she and her husband were homeless, camping out by the creek. The friend let us um, stay there in their garage, made into a, a little cabin-like. Uh, I don't know how long this is going to last, but yeah, I'm still considered homeless. At least you're out of the sun. Yeah, I'm off the creek. <laughs> Glenda Rains prepares the food she receives on a little propane stove. Her husband Gary, a former sawmill worker, approaches me and says he's frustrated that there's not more senior housing and that a glut of marijuana growers coming into Hayfork are jacking up rents. He receives just over $800 a month in Social Security. Yeah, and I just got a ticket last month for $180 for being homeless in the National Forest. <laughs> I didn't even know that was a law. He's grateful for the food he gets here each month. Get a can of this, a can of that, and, you know, I mean, it's better than nothing, but I'm just saying you should get more, you know. I mean, this is America. <laughs> you know, come on. You know, we should come first. What we, do you mean by that? Well, I mean, we can help other countries like we do. Why can't we help ourselves, you know? Despite all the people I meet in Trinity who are struggling financially, more than 10 California counties actually have higher poverty. But Trinity is one of the state's most food-insecure places. To find out why, I head to what looks like the center of food abundance in Trinity County, the farmer's market in Weaverville. Market manager Sue Corrigan is shopping. Still have zucchini. I think we need some onions for some onion rings, huh? (laughs) As she points to one farmer selling tomatoes, squash, and cucumbers, Corrigan tells me something surprising. This is my actual local farmer. The only one from Trinity County among the 10 or so vendors at the market. Most of the land here is too mountainous to grow much produce. And Corrigan tells me years ago, much of the potential farmland was taken out of commission. My family, um, two different sides of my family, um, we had farmland. Going back to the 1830s. In the 1950s, Corrigan's dad went away to college to study agriculture, but he had to change his major. Because the government was taking our land. To build the Trinity Dam, part of the Central Valley Water Project. One of our last areas that was open enough to do farming, and they buried it with a lake. Finally, she says, it's about priorities. Because we've had three different rushes that have happened in Trinity County. First the gold rush, second the timber rush, and now the marijuana rush, which is called the green rush. But she says you can't eat marijuana. Now I'm starting to understand the complaints I heard while on the food bank run with Jeff England about mills closing and marijuana growers moving in. Focus has been on 
other industries and not a food sustainable industry. Jeff England maneuvers around potholes to get to the most remote drop-off point today. He tells me about last winter when he defied Caltrans workers and drove a closed, snow-covered road to deliver food to people who'd been stuck for months. And I said, I have to go. Slip, lost traction, gained traction, and I just, I knew that they, you know, they needed the food, and so I decided to take a chance, and I made it. That's good, good. That takes a lot of guts, because even coming up the back of the mountain, they call it Refrigerator Alley for a reason. (laughs) It gets pretty slick. That's Lauren Turner, who's come to the food drop-off at the Volunteer Fire Department in Zinnia, a tiny town on the border of Humboldt County. Yeah, no, we're grateful. It's, It's not easy up here. In exchange for doing some computer work, Turner and her partner live on a friend's ranch nearby. To get groceries? Usually it's 100 miles in any direction from here to a, a large town where you can buy groceries. More than a two-hour drive, one way to Eureka or Redding. They only do that once a month. In between, they rely on the food bank delivery. We keep the canned goods back for the times when we can't get off the hill. And the fresh food, I get imaginative and you know, like I like to take the vegetables and I'll cook them with fruit juice and then I'll put fish on top of them at the last 15 or 20 minutes. Sometimes we get frozen fish and so I just make a lot of one-pot meals. England works with his wife, one employee, and many volunteers. He says the team's more than doubled the amount of food they're bringing into Trinity County in the last year. They're delivering one bag or box of food to 2,500 households each month. That's 20% of the county. And they could do more, but their antiquated refrigerator and freezer are so small, sometimes he has to decline donations of perishable food. And we probably have the lowest operating budget in the state. Our operating budget is like $41,000 a year. England says the community here is incredibly supportive. If there's one complaint he hears, it's this one that the food bank just enables drug-addicted or homeless people. We don't judge people. And, you know, those those druggies have kids. The kids might not get food normally. But if the food bank provides, they do. That lack of judgment, it comes from personal experience. England says he's been out of work before. And I've struggled in the past, a long time ago, with, with some addiction problems. And it just felt so good to be able to go to a place when you're hungry. He remembers that first meal in a soup kitchen. It was in a church. It was spaghetti. I had garlic bread and a salad. And they sent him and others home with cans of soup and chili for additional meals. A lot of people don't know what it is to, to be hungry, but if you've ever been hungry, it's a horrible feeling. You're weak, you can't do anything, um, you don't have any ambitions. I'm so happy to be able to turn the table and, and to be able to help people that might have been in my shoes before. He says, just look at the logo of the food bank. A person on a pedestal, reaching down, helping someone else up. For the California Report, I'm Lisa Morehouse in Trinity County. This story was produced in collaboration with the Food and Environment Reporting Network, a nonprofit investigative news organization.
been more than 40 years since the end of the Vietnam War, and a lot of the people who fought, died, and escaped from that conflict are coming to the end of their years. As KQED's Rachel Myro tells us, a Bay Area photographer is striving to give them the dignity and honor they've earned and a chance to feel remembered. They're older and grayer now. The men and women who stare unsmiling into the camera. Their figures shot against a black background are superimposed on jungle foliage. It looks as if they've been surprised at night in a private moment, remembering the war. Which is the feeling photographer Thomas Sanders is aiming for. This guy right here was a helicopter pilot, and he wears a necklace with a bullet. And this bullet um, hit him, and uh, you know when they pulled it out, he kept the bullet, and he wears it around his neck. Sanders says he's been taken by the fact many of his subjects carry grim mementos. I think the Vietnam veterans, some of them carry their war relics with them as a reminder that they're living. He's found it's one of the ways people who survived Vietnam are different from those who survived World War II. Sanders published a book of portraits of World War II vets seven years ago. Very serious portrait. Can you put uh, your glasses down there? Now Sanders is doing something similar with U.S. veterans of the Vietnam War, as well as South Vietnamese veterans and other Vietnamese refugees who came to California. You know, it's important that these Vietnam veterans and the immigrants, you know, get the opportunity to tell their story. It's therapeutic. He's been working with veterans groups and the San Jose Elks Club to identify people like 69-year-old Dave Sanders, no relation to Thomas, who brought a piece of shrapnel with him to the shoot. Yes, that was from a 122-millimeter rocket that almost got me. Almost. Memories like this one, that's what a photo can capture, in a way that invites the viewer in, with an intimacy that's different from a movie or a documentary or a history book. And so the idea is that, you know, the viewer becomes emotionally enthralled by the portrait. And then right next to the photo is a brief history on that veteran or immigrant. And they get to learn, you know, an individual story about them. Did uh, did we turn this way or turn that way a little bit for me? This way? Yeah. We did what our country wanted, the military portion of our country and the politicians. But, you know, the more I know, the sadder I get. I really have a lot of hate and discontent in my mind for people like uh, McNamara, Westmoreland, those that sent other people to die. Army General William Westmoreland commanded U.S. forces from 1964 to 68. Defense Secretary Robert McNamara was in charge back in the White House. If you had Robert McNamara sitting in front of you right now, what, what would you say to him? I'd kill the son of a bitch for the 58,000 guys that we have on a wall. He's talking about the American service members who died or went missing. Their names are etched on the polished black rock of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. Fittingly, today's photo shoot is taking place in a building dedicated to the memory of the Vietnam War. Every available inch of the Viet Museum in San Jose is filled with framed photos, maps, artwork, even weapons like assault rifles and hand grenades. An 85-year-old retired colonel who served in the Army of the Republic of Vietnam came up with the idea for this place. Okay, my name is Lok Vu, L-O-C-V-U, Lok Vu. Vu has been a helpful community liaison for Thomas Sanders and a profile subject himself. Sanders has photographed about 200 people so far. He's too young to have experienced the war even as a news story. This project has taught him some of that history. Vu counts that as a personal win. He wants that for second-generation Vietnamese Americans, too. 
I'm very worried about our next generation in the United States do not remember why the Vietnamese in here, where they come from, when, and the reason why. Sanders hopes to publish some of these photos in a book to serve as a document for those too young to remember and a memento for those too old to forget. For the California Report, I'm Rachel Myro in San Jose. This weekend, the Monterey Jazz Festival celebrates its diamond anniversary. It's 60. Here's the California Report, Susie Racho, and our jazz critic, Andrew Gilbert, with a preview. That is Dave Brubeck from 1958 playing at the Monterey Jazz Festival. The festival is 60 this year. But Andy, take us back to the beginning. I mean, what was the impetus for starting a jazz festival in Monterey in 1958? Well, you know, the Newport Jazz Festival had started in 1954 and immediately made a really big impact. So a DJ from the Monterey area, Jimmy Lyons, started thinking, you know, maybe we should try something like this on the West Coast. And working with the San Francisco Chronicle music critic, Ralph Gleason, they put together an amazing lineup that first year, really historic when you look at it. People like Billie Holiday, Dizzy Gillespie, um, Sonny Rollins, and it was a success. So with a festival this kind of longevity, decades of longevity, it seemed to share historic events, you know, like the Summer of Love and 9-11. I mean, a lot of different things, and it's managed to keep going through all of these things. Is it a place where artists feel like when something like that happens or there's a cultural shift that they can express themselves on a stage like Monterey Jazz? I think so. In sort of in jazz, you've sort of got two different tracks in some ways. There's really the aesthetic track where, especially early on, that first decade, Monterey was really cutting edge. I mean, you had Ornette Coleman, John Coltrane, Charles Mingus doing some of their most advanced music. And then at the same time, you had the scene brewing in the Bay Area, which Monterey was really responsive to. So in 1966, you had the Paul Butterfield Blues Band playing, and Jefferson Airplane. What have been some of the breakout performances at Monterey over the years? Well, one of my favorites is the saxophonist John Handy, who was a really respected player, but in 1965, he brought his own quintet into the festival with a really singular lineup, violin, electric guitar, stand-up bass, and drums, and was a huge hit, got signed to Columbia, released a series of albums, and it's music that stands up really well. (laughs) 
One of my favorite breakout moments is the Miles Davis Quintet. He brought his new group to the festival in 1963, featuring a very young Herbie Hancock, who's actually going to be performing at this year's festival. Let's talk about this year. There's some big names, of course, but also folks who appeal to a non-jazz crowd, rapper Common and Hamilton superstar Leslie Odom Jr. Who's on your short list to see this year? I'm really excited about pianist composer Vijay Iyer's Sextet. They have a fantastic new album out on ECM. The drummer Matt Wilson has his beautiful album out setting the poetry of Carl Sandburg to music, also various musicians reciting the verse, and I hear he's lined up some musicians to come up and, and join the group. Regina Carter, artist-in-residence, she's going to be playing every night of the festival in different settings. Should be a lot of fun. So for newcomers to the Monterey Jazz Festival, what's your advice? I mean, there's a lot of choices here. My advice is always, don't worry so much about the arena. That's ticketed, you know, we're assigned seating, and it usually sells out. But the grounds, four different stages happening, it's a great deal. You check out something, it catches your interest or it doesn't, you move on. It's a lot of fun. And, of course, it's set on the Monterey County Fairgrounds, which are beautiful. And you'll have more on the Monterey Jazz Festival at our website. That's CaliforniaReport.org. Thanks so much, Andy. Great to be with you, Susie. Have a great weekend out at Monterey. I will. Andrew Gilbert is the California Report's jazz and world music critic. There is nothing wrong with your radio. It's just engraving sound, an interactive sound installation built by Mexican artist Tania Candiani. And those metallic clicks and chirps are coming from an engraved copper plate being played through long rows of speakers. Speakers that are wrapped around sort of almost like a bat's ear. Tyler Stallings is the curator of Mundos Alternos, Art and Science Fiction in the Americas, a massive new exhibit at UC Riverside's Culver Center for the Arts, and where Candiani's sound sculpture can be experienced. And there's a stylus, like a record player, is reading the engravings, and then there's a synthesizer where you can manipulate the sound and make your own information. Mundos Alternos features more than 30 artists taking on immigration, trade, colonialism, and other cross-border issues through the lens of science fiction. Exploring such themes in Latino film and literature is nothing new, but bringing together so many Latino artists under one thematic constellation like this is. Some, like Mexican-born Ruben Ortiz Torres, borrow old technologies to imagine utopian or dystopian futures. 
His alien space car is actually a lowrider pickup truck that mimics the kind of patrol vehicle you might see kicking up dust on the U.S.-Mexico border or tearing across craters of the moon. If you look at this pickup truck, it doesn't look like a conventional pickup truck. It looks more like an abstract uh, sculpture. It's all fragmented. Alien space car is cut up into sections and tricked out with lowrider hydraulics. When activated, it can break apart like a giant transformer toy, each section spinning madly as if it could get airborne any second. For safety reasons, it can't be operated inside the Culver Center, but visitors can watch it transform in this experimental sci-fi film that Torres created. And then the front of the truck separates from the back of the truck and then runs independently while the back of the truck is also spinning. And we should explain it's, it's paint job. It's kind of fashioned after a border patrol vehicle that would be traversing the border looking for quote-unquote aliens. We customized this thing in San Isidro, which is just next to the border. So we were looking at border patrols all the time. When I look at this thing, it looks a little bit like a space rover to me. This robot that would be this alien device that crosses across borders. Mexico, the near future. But what if instead of crossing the border, migrant workers could remote control robot versions of themselves on the U.S. side from digital sweatshops south of the border? The border is closed, but the network is open. It's the premise of Mexican director Alex Rivera's acclaimed 2008 film Sleep Dealer, which gets a special section of its own in the Mundos Alternos exhibit. Let our robotics do your dirty work. Safe, reliable, we make America strong. Sleep Dealer offers a pretty bleak view of U.S. immigration policies and where they may be headed, but most of the works in Mundos Alternos express a reach for the stars kind of optimism. Here we go, entering into the, the chamber with the spaceship. Inside an inner sanctum of the Culver Center, a corn-husk-shaped wooden rocket ship the size of an old station wagon is suspended from the ceiling. Wow. A couple of black-masked Zapatista rebel dolls are at the controls. The spaceship was constructed by Portuguese-born artist Rigo 23, with help from dozens of artists and craftspeople affiliated with the actual Zapatista paramilitary political movement in Mexico's Chiapas state. The now L.A.-based artist says the group's militant rhetoric has always been leavened with a sense of the cosmic. One of the first meetings that they organized, they called it the Intergalactic Meeting. So they invited people from all over Mexico, all over Earth, all over the Milky Way and beyond. After a burst of celebrity in the 1990s, the Zapatistas came to shun the spotlight. But their flair for folk art and poetics inspired Rigo to reach out. It took months of effort, and he finally got a chance. And we were received by a group of Maya peasant organizers with their faces covered. And I said, eventually you'll probably get invited to go to a meeting in another galaxy, you know. How will you get there? And then I could see their eyes sort of smiling, you know. If you're interested, I would offer my services to build such a ship. That launched the Autonomous Intergalactic Space Program, a months-long collaboration with Zapatista painters, weavers, and carpenters that culminated in the creation of that spaceship. These people were seen as being so isolated in the mountains, growing corn and coffee. Their worldview wants to embrace the cosmos, you know? There's a motto that lights the path of the Zapatista movement. It's kind of become a guiding philosophy of this exhibit. We want a world where many worlds can fit. 
Mundos Alternos, Art and Science Fiction in the Americas, is on view at UC Riverside's Culver Center for the Arts through early February. That's the California Report magazine, a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. You can listen to us wherever you are, subscribe to our podcast, and let us know what you think about the show on Facebook or CalReport at kqed.org. Our director this week is Nina Thorson. The technical producer is Danny Bringer, with additional engineering from Howard Gelman. The online producer this week is Don Clyde. Bianca Taylor is our intern. The California Report's editorial team includes Victoria Malion, Ingrid Becker, Carrie Feibel, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Stephen Quivas. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. California Foodways is made possible with support from Cal Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the NEH. Visit www.calhum.org. Support for the California Report comes from Barracuda Networks, cloud-ready firewalls engineered for today's next-generation business networks. Learn more at barracuda.com slash cloud-ready. The James Irvine Foundation, expanding economic and political opportunity for Californians who are working but struggling with poverty. More at Irvine.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose family foundation advances the wiser use of energy and natural resources on a planet where everything is connected. On the web at theschmidt.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.